Most living things are. Okay, when you take a really close look at them, <laughs> you start to be like, man, nature is kind of strange. Yeah. Nature is weirdly awesome. Na- yes. <laughs> Nomadic cowbirds. And poking the puffballs. I like turtles. And lightsaber frog calls. Fresh series got filled with persimmon seeds. Hey, this is Alan. And this is Alicia. We're from the Great Plains Nature Center, and you're listening to That's My Favorite, the podcast where we geek out with naturalists. Today, we don't really have a guest. We're just kind of going to talk about our topic for this week, which is weather and climate and wildlife. So we're kind of dual geeking out here today. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a double episode. We're going to talk about a lot of different things that are our favorites. Um, it's a broad topic, so I don't even know where to start. Obviously, you know, for animals that are going to uh, live on land, right? (laughs) You need to be able to uh, manage extreme temperatures, hot and cold. You need to be able to manage uh, wet and dry climates. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. It's a lot to manage. (laughs) It's a lot to manage. It takes a lot of effort. (laughs) So let's see, where to start? Obviously, climate is a big driver of all of that, right? Yeah. Climate and weather. Um, so what is the difference between climate and weather? Because I know people tend to use them interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing at all, do they? Right. Yeah. No, they don't. Okay. So the way I've I've heard it some different ways. Um, one, one good way uh, is climate is what you expect. Weather is what you get. Yes, I've heard that. Right? So yeah. it's kind of like mm-hmm. the climate would be the average conditions over mm-hmm. long periods of time that you would expect to see in a region. So like a trend, basically. Yeah, like a trend. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, here in uh, here in Kansas, what would you, how mm-hmm. would you describe a summer in Kansas? Extreme. <laughs> Extreme, right. <laughs> it gets pretty warm. It, it gets, gets hot. Pretty, it gets hot. It gets and, hot in the summer. We have it. It's frequently, it's cooler in the winter and then you have those seasons that we fluctuate between yeah absolutely so uh yeah but the weather okay could vary right uh quite it could vary radically um you know sometimes we even get snow in april here right It, Right. it, it happens okay um so you know despite what the you expect to get it's not always what you do get Um, I guess another way I've heard it is like a guy walking his dog. Have you heard this one before? (laughs) No, I haven't. Okay. So it's like, if you think of somebody walking their dog down a trail, Mm -hmm. the dog is like, he's running around, he's going from like side to side, he's sniffing everything uh, that he comes across. But the person, you, the human Mm -hmm. are still going in the same path. So you're like, you're following a predictable line. Gotcha. So you'd be like climate. Your dog would be like weather. weather. So even though you're following a predictable path, dog's bouncing all over the place. You just you don't know exactly what it's going to do on a given day. Gotcha. That's a really good way to explain it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't come up with that. Somebody else did. But it was it was I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so because obviously, yeah, climate is a huge driving force in what animals look like, how they behave, what they're you know what's going on inside their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big driving force in evolution is that uh, the, the impacts of weather and climate. Maybe we should talk a little bit about, I guess, what are some crazy adaptations that we see in plants and animals today? No, that, that is a great idea. 
Okay, so are you you're are you more of a a plant person or an animal person? I guess like I know I know you're a naturalist. Obviously, you love everything, <laughs> but what I guess what's kind of what is more your favorite? Since this is that's my favorite. What 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 is your favorite when it comes to uh, these kinds of climate and weather adaptations? I find I love animals, but I find plant adaptations absolutely fascinating. Okay, good because I was going to say animals. Oh, thank goodness! So, all right. <laughs> so I feel like we've got both bases covered between both of us. Here. Super. All right. Um, so plant, what are, yeah. So what what are what are some I guess what are some examples? I mean, plant adaptations. I love them because they are a constant reminder that plants are living organisms. I think it's really easy. I even find myself doing it, putting your plant in the window and going, oh, I learned in kindergarten, it needs sun and water and it's fine. And then realizing, oh, well, it has to need those things because it's alive. So all these adaptations it has in response to being eaten, so things like thorns and stuff like that, is a constant reminder that these living organisms are changing to match their climate or to inhabit that climate, which can be very extreme. So some of these adaptations, if you want to start on like the very cold end of the spectrum, uh, one of my, my absolute favorite things are evergreens. Oh yeah. Okay. I for sure. love evergreens. I love the fact that this plant is able to keep all that greenery year round. And there's reasons for that. So most people, what's the first thing you think of when you think of an evergreen? Oh, like a Christmas tree. Right. You're, yeah. you're thinking of conifers. Right. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of conifers, not not all of them, but I would say the vast majority of conifer trees are evergreens. So they keep their, their leaves year round. Um, some, some conifer trees do, they're deciduous, so they'll actually drop their needles, which I should back up and explain needles. <laughs> so uh, conifer trees have modified leaves that are those needles that you see. So those are leaves. They are, they're these thin lanceolates. They're that shape for a couple of reasons. Um, but I should, they're, I should probably go back and mention <laughs> the fact that what a conifer tree means. Because oh. <laughs> I'm just sure. throwing this term no, out no, here. No, that's fine. Take it from right. there. Yeah. All right. Conifer trees are trees that they reproduce by forming cones. Oh, that makes sense. Sure. Right. So instead of using flowers for seed propagation uh, to reproduce, they make cones for their seeds. Now, not all of these cones are hard. The best example is one that we have in the park. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, the red cedar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So even though they look like berries, they're cones. Yews uh, are another one. They have those bright red. They're kind of like fleshy looking, but they're cones. Huh. Yeah, so not all cones have to be hard. Um, uh, ginkgos. I, I think most people don't look at look at a ginkgo tree, but ginkgos are conifers also. Ginkgos are conifers? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, okay. it's weird. <laughs> Technically, I think ginkgos are like their own thing, so it's... Something weird. It's something yeah. weird, yeah. They're, they're old. <laughs> Conifer leaves have that very thin needle shape to them. They're long and slender, and they can even be kind of pokey, kind of stabby. <laughs> right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but there's not a lot of surface area on them. No. Yeah. No, there's not. Yeah. So that has to do with preventing water loss, which can be really important when you couple it with the waxy coating that you have on them. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, so that waxy coating, it helps to keep water in and also that, sh that shape. So it overall prevents water loss, which is really important in not just a dry environment, but it's important for extremely cold weather. True, yeah. If it gets, yeah, because it gets very cool and dry in the winter as well. Right. I guess, yeah, that makes me think of like, um, like longleaf pines and like, like, uh, like ponderosa pines and stuff mm -hmm. like that, where they're kind of, yeah, they kind of get it like both, both temperatures, right? They get, they, you get very cold winters where they are at and you yes. also get very hot summers. So yeah, that's kind mm -hmm. of for both, both, uh, extremes there. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I love ponderosa pines. They're, they're, they're one of my favorites. But they have an extra adaptation to kind of survive freezing temperatures as well. When it gets cold, they will move all that water out of the cells and put it in between the cells in oh. the leaves. Okay, so the plant is, it's, it's doing, it's pulling it. Mm -hmm. This is weird. Okay, so yeah, the, plant, is. the plant is actually taking water. It's like dehydrating its cells yes. and putting it into the space, extra, like this, what I guess what they'd call extracellular space, right? So, the, you know, stuff that's in between. Exactly. Okay, why do they do that? They do it for a very important reason. It's because the water is not, it, it ends up in that extracellular space with the sugars, Oh. that the tree is making as a food source. So it, when it, that happens and it gets concentrated there, it actually will lower the freezing temperature. That solution does. Oh, okay. So it's, and then it also produces proteins, kind of like, they're basically antifreeze. And those proteins cause any ice crystals that would form to be a non-needle shape that would normally like pierce the cells or cause you know severe damage at that cellular level. Instead, it that antifreeze forces it into a hexagonal shape. Ah, okay. So it actually changes the shape of the ice crystal mm -hmm. in a way that it doesn't pierce. It doesn't cells harm or... the plant. Oh, that is so crazy. That's really cool. <laughs> isn't it the coolest yeah, adaptation? I, it's really neat. I mean, and there's there's kind of there's a few similar things for animals as well that mm -hmm. do that have to deal with um, the risk of getting frozen, right? Because right. you know when we do have extreme extreme cold temperatures, mm -hmm. yeah, your you know your tissues can actually freeze, right? Like yes. we call it frostbite when it happens to us. Your tissue actually freezing, and it can be. It can kill that tissue permanently, right? It's it's a very right. very serious thing, uh, very lethal yeah. potentially thing. Because there's there's stages to frostbite, right? Um, so you yeah. can get like a little frostbite, but it doesn't. Or if you get like really severe frostbite, is there is there a right? Yeah, I cut think, off where your tissue was. I like, think it's kind of like I think it's kind of like yeah, like how you have like a, a severity of burn. How if, whether it's oh, like a, that... whether if it's like a like a surface like oh, you know okay. level or if it goes down you know through tissues I think it's gotcha. the same with frostbite you know that that you know, makes are you, sense are you freezing you know your finger all the way through mm -hmm. completely solid or is it just you know the skin on the outside because it's treatable frostbite's mm -hmm. treatable to a certain point I think right and then yeah <laughs> kind of like burns are treatable to a certain point right yeah for gotcha. sure then you have to take some other measures. Um, but yeah, there there are some other uh, examples of animals that do something kind of similar because I like that you you mm -hmm. talked about how the 
the plants are basically making kind of an antifreeze, mm-hmm. right? Animals do that too. Um, it like uh, painted turtles are a good example of that, right? Um, if you think about like most of our turtles in Kansas are aquatic, and a lot of them to get through the winter, they hibernate. Right. Or, or I guess yeah. the term is brewmate mm-hmm. when, a, when a turtle does it. Um, and they're doing that in these ponds that are going to freeze over. OK, um, like mm-hmm. snapping turtles, I think like they don't they basically shut off for like a few months. Yeah. <laughs> and they're and they're just, you know, their their metabolism just drops. They're in they're in the water waiting for uh, for warmer temperatures to come. Mm-hmm. But how do they not just turn into a complete popsicle? while that's happening. Right, uh, because if, if your water freezes, I, I mean, do they have to be in these really deep? I, I mean, you wouldn't have to be frozen solid to still freeze, right? Right, so yeah, I mean, how to, yeah. So to avoid, you know, any tissue damage from that, they also uh, start producing glycerol. Oh. So, you know, we store a lot of our energy in our body, uh, like, you know, in our, in our liver and, and like fat stores and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. when, when it gets really cold, some animals will start breaking that down glycogen into glycerol and that glycerol, like you said, it lowers the freezing point and keeps ice from forming inside cells. Which is important because that's how you get cellular death that's how you get damage yeah oh yeah i mean if 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 yeah if ice crystals were to form inside cells it completely wrecks the you know wrecks the whole thing right it's not good no it's not good (laughs) and there's a lot of other weird things that that animals will do with that um like paper wasps and spiders and things like that they you know a lot of a lot of insects do overwinter right they survive Mm -hmm. the winter um they they also kind of hibernate a little bit. When an insect does it, it's called diapause. So it's, it's a whole other term. So you've got hibernation, you've got brumation, you've got diapause for insects. Um, and they do a, they do a similar thing um, where they have these, these special kinds of proteins that help um, keep ice, again, out of the nucleus of a cell. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like a tree. They're, they are starting to freeze on the inside, but they're deciding how and where they freeze mm-hmm. uh these proteins are are helping to you know moderate that process of where the ice goes right so it's not actually right. not actually you know forming these gigantic crystals um inside their body it's they're having some measure of control over the situation right and i mean yeah it's obviously not like not like a conscious control, like the spider's deciding this, but the proteins right. are deciding it for the spider, and that's great, you know? Well, it's the spider's protein, so really, is it the spider or is it the protein? Oh, boy. <laughs> that's that's for another podcast. Yeah. We'll, we'll put that over to the side here. But, I mean, that, that's that's really cool how you can, this kind of natural mm-hmm. antifreeze. And, like, yeah. actually, I think the antifreeze you buy in the store is also made, it's made from glycerol right it's usually propylene glycol i think yeah it so is. It's, it's actually like the same chemical that you put in your car to keep it from freezing so it's literally antifreeze yeah it's it's it's, it's a literal form of antifreeze um and it makes sense right you know something mm-hmm. that uh has you know more particles in it that's you know a more concentrated solution has a lower freezing point like um you know like coca-cola is not going to freeze at the same temperature that water does Right. right. Even though Coke is mostly water, it has all those has. sugars and all those other stuff that change the freezing point of mm-hmm. that solution. 
So yeah, it's, it's really cool how that works. That, that is really cool. <laughs> Cause I mean, the, I think the adaptation most people think about rather than antifreeze necessarily with cold, extreme cold temperatures would be cover. So having more hair. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Which I mean, is fun actually, because that's something, something animals have in spades right. when you come to like <laughs> mammals. I mean, yeah. That's that's a defining characteristic, but flowers have it too. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, like one of my other favorites, uh, I found them. Actually, I found them on a hiking trip, and I wanted to know what was this beautiful little spring flower that was insanely fuzzy and soft. <laughs> I could I couldn't stop. I had to make myself stop patting it. It was very difficult because this thing was so. It was covered in these very very fine hairs that just it it was it was the softest thing I have ever touched in my life. <laughs> okay. So I found out what it was. I looked it up. There was there was a little bit of cursing and looking through many many different flower guides. There always is. There always is. But these wonderful little flowers, they're called pask flowers. Pask flowers. Yeah. Okay. I hope I'm How's that spelled? P a s q u e. So pask flowers, they are an herbaceous perennial. They're native to all over the world, but we have at least two dozen species that are native to North America. So those those silky kind of velvet hairs, um, they they help to protect it against cold weather. But they also have a couple of other fun adaptations too. So so the hairs basically they serve the same function as fur. Yeah, it's like a cloak. Basically, it's, it's, it's like the same insulation. Thing. Exactly. Oh, that's crazy. It helps with. <laughs> it's exactly insulation because it helps with the air movement over it. It cuts it down. Oh, that's so weird. It's weird to think of a yeah of a of a flower with fur. I like that. <laughs> and it does make sense because they are one of the earliest spring flowers where they're farther south, um, but they also are adapted to that extreme climate. So you can find them at high altitudes. You can find them in tundra in the north, which is basically a cold desert. Sure. Yeah. So they they have a couple of other really cool tricks up their sleeve. There, well, I should explain what the flower looks like first, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, paint us so, a word picture. All right, a word picture. Pask flowers are, especially the one that I know of, they vary a little bit in color, but the shape is still the same. They have uh, five petals, and they're uh, reminiscent. They've got that bell shape to them, and they're, they can vary from like a light purple to a darker purple. So they're this beautiful bell-shaped purple flower with defined points and they're fuzzy all over so that that really fine i have a picture actually yeah i'll have to put a picture in the show notes i'm gonna have sure. well i want to show you a picture too they that hair it's all over the petals oh as well gosh, as the stem right. and the yeah. leaves so it's absolutely covers the whole outside of this flower oh that is so neat yeah it's really it is like uh, every surface of the plant even the undersides of the leaves are fuzzy looking mm-hmm that's crazy. It's awesome. And that bell shape, it helps to, it tracks the movement of the sun. So it gets oh, optimal okay. like sodium. Oh, like a sunflower, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it gets that optimal solar radiation to help warm it up. And that bell shape draws all of that heat. It traps it, basically. It's kind of like a, a crocus will, too. That same type of shape. And they, 
did a couple of studies. I think there was a paper uh, specifically with crocus and that shape, and the, they wanted to know about color too because color plays an important role with what light waves you're, what length of. Oh yeah, wavelength. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, right. Wavelength—that's the word. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it makes sense that these flowers are purple because it's the wavelength. So better oh, yeah. than like a yellow flower or a red flower on the other end of the spectrum, the purple is going to warm up better and faster. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really weird. So per, but it does. I don't know why. <laughs> they, it's more. It absorbs. Is it because it's? A, I don't know. Is it a darker color? I, or I? Oh, that's interesting. Because yeah, I don't. I'm thinking it's because it's a darker color. But I think white heated up faster than yellow did too. Because it would be absorbing a different spectrum of mm-hmm. wavelength of light. Right. That makes sense. Uh, okay, so. Yeah, like like a black t-shirt versus a white t-shirt. Exactly. Like a black t-shirt is going to absorb wavelengths of light and radiative mm-hmm. heat. A white t-shirt would reflect them. Same idea with a flower. Yep. And its petals uh, being a specific color in order to take advantage of heat. I yeah, I guess a lot of the a lot of the early blooming flowers in April are do kind of have that similar color. Then mm-hmm. they're in that they're in that range of. Of yeah. purples and pinks and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's I, a, there's I would lot. have had no idea why that was. That's so weird. It is. It's really cool, too, because the first thing you think of with a flower is that it's wanting to attract a pollinator, not necessarily whether it's trying to just go about its life and make sugars and be... Yeah. Yeah. That's so okay. So, yeah, <laughs> that, I, I didn't realize that, um, yeah, I mean, there's like a heat storage kind of thing happening with that plant that's yeah. okay that's really cool all right what what else what else other than pasque flowers uh i guess are, are there any other plants that are adapted to extreme cold that you like there's a few i don't know as much about them as i'd like to a lot of a lot of the ones that are adapted to very extreme cold tend to be lichens and mosses that can survive those freezing temperatures or right. that do really well with things such as permafrost where you've got this frozen ground that they're having to contend with sure yeah yeah i think a lot about like uh like when i think of lichen i think of reindeer mm-hmm. like, like it's the it's the staple of their diet right this right. is eating because there's not a lot else growing uh at all times of the year mm-hmm. in the tundra no there's not yeah. <laughs> a lot of things go they go dormant during those months, especially if you get very far north and you don't have any sunlight. Right. So your plants, they don't really have much of an option except to go dormant, except for your evergreens. Except for the evergreens. And that's actually one of the the adaptations is not just to keep the leaves and then do, well, I should back up. That's the advantage to having those leaves because you would think it would be more of a strain to have to have antifreeze in your leaves rather than doing what the deciduous trees here in the great plains do which is they just drop their leaves yeah just get rid of them right but that's because if you have those leaves ready to go as soon as the sun reaches you you are the first ones to be able to start photosynthesizing yeah true you don't have to go through the process of budding and 
getting mm-hmm. new leaves again. You don't have to grow them all. Which takes a huge energy investment, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of energy to have to grow all of that every year again and again and again. Hmm. And then you also don't have to worry as much about sudden fluctuations in temperature in the weather. If the weather, for instance, we were talking about that at the beginning. If the right. weather randomly fluctuates. Yeah. <laughs> True. Then, You're kind of set up for any, any a range of, of temperatures. Mm-hmm. Cool. So are there any animals that you like that are really well adapted to to cold or are they all kind of well animals so there yeah there's a there's a huge range of uh of cold adaptations in animals right i mean like like the pasque flower right obviously mammals have fur okay that's a huge one right. <laughs> anything that insulates the body is going to be a good cold adaptation <laughs> um, but what we don't think about maybe right off the bat is shivering that's true right like why why do why do living things shiver Okay, so the reason that animals are doing that, it's it's basically a, a nerve impulse. Okay, you, you know, the, the, the okay. nerves in your skin are, are feeling cold, right? They're detecting okay. cold. They are sending an impulse to, uh, to what um, muscles that are mutually antagonistic. So that's a big term, but it basically just means muscles that work against each other. These kind of set them to... Uh, really make really tiny contractions okay really quickly so it's a very quick you know reflex basically is this oh. kind of uh you know this just really small muscle contraction over and over again mm-hmm. um the, the reason they do that is because that causes the muscle to start you know using energy right it starts burning uh um like uh, atp right gotcha. that that, that that's that store of energy in the cell and that creates heat but because it's such a small motion it's such a small reflex it doesn't you know take a lot of energy for movement it's just like sort of this vibration to kind of you know create a little bit of warmth from your cells uh to the rest of your body to to get just a little bit of heat going uh when you're very very cold you know Mm -hmm you're not like flailing around wildly when you're shivering, right? Right. It's it's just like, it's just like a very, it's a very confined, a very small range of movement, but Mm -hmm. then shivering does create a lot of heat and, uh, and, and mammals aren't the only ones that do it. Um, bumblebees actually do that as well. They'll, they'll shiver their flight muscles when they're very cold. Um, and they, they, which is kind of strange to think about because, you know, we think of insects as being cold blooded, but this is something that they're doing with their body to generate their own body heat. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of like a, kind of like a little bit of a partial endotherm, right? They're partially, mm-hmm. you know, um, regulating their own body temperature and not just relying on the environment. Mm-hmm. So shivering is a good one. Um, also, like if you've ever wondered, okay, you see ducks and geese getting in the uh, in the water pretty much no matter what the temperature is, right? Right. Yeah. But- it seems insane. How are they not freezing? How, how do their feet not freeze off? I yeah. mean, I, I can understand if they've got all of these feathers. It's like fur. It keeps you insulated. But how do their feet not freeze off? Right. So the way that their feet manage to uh, – or or the way that they don't, you know, freeze to death just from having their feet in the water yeah. is that they are um, – it has to do with the way the circuitry of their blood works. Okay. So, you know, we've got um, we've got veins. We've got arteries, right, in our body. 
arteries carry blood from the heart to the uh, to the extremities, to mm-hmm. the organs, to wherever it's going. The veins bring it back to the heart. Okay. In a lot of animals that have to deal with cold temperatures, you get what's called a countercurrent heat exchange. Explain. Okay, so think about <laughs> it like escalators. Okay, you have an up escalator and a down escalator. Right. Okay, uh, if you had two people going up the, uh, if you had people coming, you know, from upstairs going downstairs, they could, they're so close that they could hand something to the people going upstairs on the way down, right? Oh. So let's say, you know, they're, you know, you've got everybody is taking in, you know, an apple. I don't know, taking an apple and then getting on the down escalator. But they want to put that apple back. They hand it to the person going on the up escalator as they're passing each other. Okay. So it's just kind of like you're handing things over. That's how their veins and arteries work. They're so close together that as the arteries, okay, are pumping Mm -hmm. blood to the feet, the heat is actually passing from the artery into the vein. So it's basically the warm blood that's go that would be going into their legs is dumping the heat off into the cold blood of the vein. So it never actually gets that far away from their the core of their body. So the, the, all the warmth, they're not actually pumping warm blood into their legs because that'd be a huge waste. They'd just go into the water, right? You're just the you know the cold of the water would would leach all that heat out of their legs. That's insane. It's really strange, yeah. And I mean, it's like uh, you see you see this as well with um, with like whales too, okay? You know, uh, like baleen whales, blue whales. They have to, you know, they take in a massive amount of seawater, very very cold seawater into their mouth. How does that not drop their body temperature? Because under their tongues, they have that similar kind of countercurrent heat exchange. So the, you know, they're they're managing to keep that warm blood close to uh, you know the core of their body where it really counts it doesn't matter if their legs are cold as long as they're not losing a bunch of heat well flippers in this case uh flipper oh yeah flippers (laughs) flippers for whales for ducks yeah (laughs) that they're not losing a bunch of heat into their legs and things like that so it's a really weird yeah really weird at a very specific adaptation for that it's very specific but it's it's such an elegant solution in a lot of ways. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, there's kind of a like they, you see the opposite, uh, kind of an opposite thing for that for for mm-hmm. animals that get too hot. Okay. All right. So 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 what about so yeah what about the other end of that spectrum? What about for really really hot weather and hot climates? What are some what are some cool plant adaptations for that? Ooh, there's there's a lot of really cool adaptations in plants for most of them have to do with water loss because sure. a lot of these places that are extremely hot or they get extremely cold at night are deserts. There's not a lot of water just lying around. Yeah, no, it's so. a valuable resource. So the first one, I think, well... I'm gonna st- I'm gonna start with my favorite actually, and then I'll move into the other one. Sure, that's, um, that's what we're here for. My absolute favorite. I love. I was introduced the first few times I visited New Mexico, which you can imagine is there's some very wonderful desert parts to oh, it. Oh, it's, it's it's beautiful state. Yeah, gorgeous. I, I there's a reason I think their whole state thing is beautiful. New yeah. Mexico. It's, it's yeah, absolutely yeah. gorgeous. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a great 
a great mm-hmm. trip through that state. Just it's a cool drive. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's <laughs> awesome. So one of the things I was introduced to that I was absolutely fascinated by was mesquite. Mesquite. Okay. Yeah. I sure. I love mesquite. So mesquite is. Um, well, for those that don't know, it's in the it's it's in a, the Fabaceae family. So it's um, that's is that the is that the pea family like legumes? Yeah, that's okay. legumes. So oh, it's a legume. Yeah, weird. Uh, it's been I didn't it's know been that. around. Yeah, yeah, it's been around for a while. They are they're native to North America, specifically like the southwestern portion of the United sure, States. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, they were. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of them uh, when I lived in Texas. Yes. Yeah, in North Texas that had quite a few. Mm-hmm. So to kind of describe them, they're this. They are typically a tree, but they can be more like a sh- big shrubby kind of tree too. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't get terribly tall. Yeah. Yeah, I think the tallest is like I'm trying to think how tall they can get. I think. Well, depending on the species, they can get – some of them can get a little bit taller. Um, honey mesquite can get, like, I think 50 feet tall. Oh, what? I yes. didn't know that. That's crazy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so they, they've been dated back to, like, the Pleistocene age. So they've been around for a while. So they, sure. they have wonderful adaptations, and specifically to desert, shrubland, desert environments. So they're really good at that. But – they have an adaptation that our prairie plants have that a lot of plants have when they're adapted to places that they might not get water very often, which would be an extremely long taproot. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you got to get down to where the water is, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to conserve whatever water loss. So sometimes being down, the ground's cooler. It's not like it's up towards the surface where evaporation happens much more readily. So. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but honey mesquite, like I mentioned earlier, I think, depending on how you cut this, I like honey mesquite. Honey mesquite is the first thing that most people think of when you say mesquite because yeah. those those trees, I mean, they're everywhere. They're in Texas. They're sure. in all through, like, you know, Panhandle of Oklahoma, all that area. You have to go a little bit farther south to get them. But they, like I said, they can get up to 50 feet tall. That's that's crazy Which to me. Which yeah. is big. They provide a lot of shade for other desert animals, but they themselves they have because they're in that pea family. They've got leaves that are also kind of lanceolate. Yeah, they're they're yeah. very skinny leaves, aren't mm-hmm. they? Yeah, they are, and that's for the same reason as pine needles. It's to it's to have less surface area and minimize water loss. Right, less evaporation. Mm-hmm. But they also have some cool adaptations in the way that they grow so if you lose the main trunk you can actually get new buds forming from that main trunk so you get you they're underground to start with so you end up with this i've seen where farmers have cut in because they don't want the mesquite tree there because they've got thorns on them too i mean they're not fun (laughs) they they got thorns they got these long seed pods that look like bean pods on them sure um but i've seen them where they cut off and it's it looks like six trunks all in this really tight cluster because they keep putting up these new underground buds whenever they lose those trunks so even if they suffer some damage they're able to recover from that which is insane kind of yeah kind of like having a spare yeah interesting a spare trunk almost yeah it's 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 a little weird uh but i like i like screw bean mesquite myself screwby 
Screw bean. So, screw bean. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's, I've never heard of this. Here, here. I'm going to have to show you a picture. Here, I'll let you see that. It's the seed pods. <laughs> instead of growing this very long, thin seed pod, the seed pod grows in a tight spiral. Oh, my gosh. They look like little caterpillars. <laughs> a little bit. That's so cool. So it's this, it's this really tight spiral that they grow in. Uh, part one of the theories is it is to kind of minimize insect predation so it's it's harder for like for insects like weevils and things that would normally burrow in to eat those seeds okay yeah because these these evolved with uh, alongside megafauna and things like that they want these seeds to be eaten because that's how these seeds germinate is through scarification of being eaten and going through the digestive system of an animal. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like so, a honey locust or mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of good examples of that. Right? Yeah. So they want, so they want animals to eat these seeds. They don't want them to be eaten by little insects and then nothing happens. Right. <laughs> so it's a weird thing. It's, they want the seeds to be eaten, but by the right thing. Just by the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what's fun is the plant itself also grows in a clockwork spiral. It does. It does. Oh, okay. It's so cool. So these, I, I just love that fact. I love so they've got twisty seed pods mm-hmm. and then the branches grow in a twisting pattern as well, like yes. around the trunk. Yes. That's, that's really neat. It's really, really cool. So on the other end of the spectrum, when you think about desert plants, I also really like these are cactus but more specifically i like prickly pear cactus oh yeah absolutely i love prickly pears not not because i like eating them necessarily or eating the fruiting portions but (laughs) i just like the shape i like the shape a little bit better than things like barrel cactus or other ones because they have more they have a few less spines and hairs to them right so they have that more succulent they are a succulent but they have that that fleshier kind of appearance to them right so that, like all other succulents, that's for conserving water. That's to prevent water loss. Absolutely. And they're, like, they, they turn out to be a pretty good food source for a lot of things too, right? Because they they're not, I guess, they're not extremely spiny, so they're accessible, mm-hmm. but they still hold on to a lot of water, right? Exactly. And they do, like you mentioned, they do have, there are cactus, they do have spines on them. So they, they are trying, and they, they can be quite... It's hard to get to that prickly pear fruit sometimes. So there's most animals they can't just like pluck it off and eat it. They actually have to have to know how to work their way around those spines. So you couldn't just walk right. up to a prickly pear cactus and pick it off. You you have no, to be yeah. able to beat those. <laughs> and that's the whole thing is is despining, despining cactus to eat it. It's Oof. it's not fun and it's not easy. Imagine. Yeah, that sounds yeah. <laughs> that does not sound like a fun process at all. No. And now, wait, are are the spines of cactuses also, are they kind of leaf, technically? Technically, they're a modified. They're like, they're like an extremely modified leaf. Extremely modified. Okay. So cactus, to give a uh, kind of a rundown, the leaf itself that you think of is that large, roundish, that bright green portion. And then the, then you have these little aerials those little tiny round spots where you get those tiny little like almost um they're called glockids but they're like little tiny hairs that grow out around them okay and then frequently that's where your spines if you actually look at the spine on a cactus the spine or the thorn is coming from like the center of that aerial and then you have like the little tiny 
hair surround it too. It's it's weird oh. when you start looking at it up close. <laughs> Most living things are. Okay, when you take a really close look at them, <laughs> you start to be like, man, nature is kind of strange. Yeah. Nature is weirdly awesome. Na- yes. <laughs> So we do, but we do have cactus and all cactus, just to be fair, have those morphological adaptations of having that succulent type form to their flesh to retain water. And the, those thorns and hairs and stuff, that's for, to minimize water loss also. I mean, it's that shape, it's that lancelate shape that we keep coming back to. Yeah. The very skinny, Mm -hmm. yeah. Not getting as much sunlight, Mm -hmm. not not absorbing as much heat. makes a lot of sense. And it does help with air circulation too. Yeah, so, uh, but the really cool adaptation for cactus in general is the fact that they, they, their, their stomatas that most plants have a stomata that they open to do photosynthesis. Right. That's how Mm -hmm. they, that's how they, they, they breathe basically. Right. Yeah. Well, you can imagine if you have that open under a really hot sun during the day, that's why things dry out so fast. Oh yeah. You don't want to do that during the day. So they do it at night. They're a nocturnal plant. <laughs> oh, that's a weird thought. Yeah. But yeah, I, I can't remember. Somebody somebody mentioned it. it was like, it's a nocturnal plant. And it's like, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. Yeah, no, totally. Because frequently most people, when they think about cactus at night, the first thing they think about are the blooms and the fact that they're only blooming at night. Right, okay. But it's the whole plant. It does all of its photosynthesis at night. And it will even store... Um, like the organic acid that it gets from converting the carbon until daylight as well to... To get the last kind of piece mm-hmm. of the puzzle, huh? Yeah. So That's, cactus are cool. So they kind of stagger. They get, they do, they take in the gases and things like that during the nighttime. They mm-hmm. get the sunlight during the day and then they're able to synthesize their sugars and all that. Right. So, wow. that I didn't know that. This is why I like doing this podcast. I always <laughs> learn something cool. Speaking of cool things, I know you have you have some some animals that you're thinking of. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of unusual things that animals do to beat the heat, right? Um, especially desert animals, right? They're they're the obvious mm-hmm. go-to for a lot of this. Um, if you think about, you know, you've got that we've got that precipitation gradient in Kansas, and you know, you've mm-hmm. When you as when you go way way west, it does start to get really dry and a little bit deserty in spots. Mm-hmm. Like, have you been to um, uh, like Little Jerusalem, the Badlands out there? I haven't yet. It's actually oh. something I meant to do last weekend, and it didn't happen. Okay, yeah, that's a good that's a good like Kansas road trip within your own state, right? It's just it's it looks really crazy out there. Such it a wonderful. Looks, it looks like a different yeah. Totally different state. Doesn't look like it's part of Kansas. And yet it's still part of Kansas. It's still part of Kansas. That's what's nice about it. Uh, but yeah, so when you go out there, you'll see lots of stuff. You'll see um, you'll see jackrabbits, black-tailed jackrabbits mm-hmm. running around. And um, they obviously look a lot different than the rat, you know, your standard like eastern cottontail, you know, short and squat mm-hmm. <laughs> rabbit. They yes. they're really long-legged. They have enormously long ears, okay? The ears, proportionally, they don't look like they fit the animal. Yeah, they're, they're, they're huge, right? Yeah. Those are all adaptations to the heat, okay? So okay. their ears are really well uh, vascularized. So they have a lot of veins running oh. very close to the surface of the skin in their ears. Mm-hmm. So that helps them. Again, you've got that heat, that body heat, okay? Mm-hmm. 
when the blood pumps up into the ears, it's able to, you know, lose heat. So they're able to dump heat off of their blood, basically, through convection as air moves across the surface of their long, huge, thin ears. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a good way to prevent overheating because that's yeah. that can also be a that can also be a problematic thing for animals that live in really hot temperatures. You you know, you some animals in the cold you want to store that heat. Animals in the heat have to get rid of it. The other thing I like about uh, the jackrabbits is the length of their legs helps keep their bodies off the ground. So you think about, like, yeah, the ground is obviously very, very hot there. <laughs> okay? I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. I just assume that, you know, it's for jumping like everything else, not for well, keeping. Well, sure. It's that that's part of it, but it but, also helps keep them away because if you yeah. you know if you're in contact with a hot surface like a lizard, okay, mm-hmm. that's you know there's conduction happening there, right? There's heat passing between that contact with you know a hot rock and the lizard. It's like we are directly warming it up. So to avoid that, you know, they have to stay a little bit away from the ground at all times. Um, it's it's a good you know it's a good adaptation to yeah. avoid contact with that really hot ground. So another thing that a lot of these uh, animals in hot environments have, okay, everything from you know, deer to you know, pronghorn and things like that, um, they have what's called a, a carotid reti, okay, R-E-T-E. I think that's how it's pronounced. Fairly certain. I think that's what I've heard too. Okay. So a carotid reti. What is that? It's basically a net of veins that is right underneath their brain. Okay, so your carotid artery is Mm -hmm. the one, it's in your neck, it carries blood to your brain, right? Very important. Very, super important. (laughs) You gotta have blood, you gotta have oxygen going to your brain. But what you don't want is to overheat your brain. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Again, this is that problem of too much, too much heat. So having really hot blood coming from the core of your body, shooting straight to your brain, is not a super great thing when you're in a very warm environment. So they will have this net of veins. So basically, right before the blood gets to the brain, it starts spreading out through this really fine network into really small capillaries, right? So it kind of you know, takes all that warm, uh, warm blood and then spreads it out. So it cools before it enters the brain and disperses all that heat before it has a chance to do. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's something that you would never think about, but it's crucially important. You know, well, it's yeah, one you're of the... talking about the most important organ in your body. It yeah. regulates everything you want to you want to not cause any damage if you can avoid it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the, the Riti is like a way of, of, you know, it's one of those those little adaptations that they that they have that it's just something you completely overlook. With but it's very significant. You know, mm-hmm. it's and that's that's what I like about you know when we're talking about animal physiology. There's a lot of little things, mm-hmm. you know, that seem just like kind of like details. But when you start to explore what's the function behind these really minute structures. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating to me. I, I love I love looking at animals on that level. You know, <laughs> um, let's see what else. What else do 
do animals do in hot climates? Obviously, mm. a lot of a lot of animals sweat and pant. You know. Yeah. You, it's it's like the opposite of shivering in some ways. Yeah, exactly right. So you're promoting uh, more evaporation, mm-hmm. right? To 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 lose heat that way. Yeah. Um, but you don't want to lose too much of your water as well, right? Because animals have to deal with water balance too, just like a plant does. You can't lose too much of it. So. So I imagine that would make a difference because panting, I mean, you're opening your mouth, you're trying to get a certain amount of surface area and circulation. It's, it would be like the cactus opening its stomata during the day. It's, you're just asking to lose water. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's costly. So it's not Mm. always the best strategy. And so, um, yeah, so there are other things that they do to conserve water, which is, I think is interesting. Do tell. Um, Okay. Have you ever, like, uh, let's see, have you ever been near a pond or, like, a ditch and seen um, seen those little, what look like little smokestacks? Have you ever seen these before? I, I don't know if I have. Okay. If you, if you haven't, that's okay. But if you do see something that looks almost like something built a little, uh, like a little chimney out of tiny mud balls. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Do you know what makes those? I should. <laughs> there, it's crayfish that are doing that. Okay. Yeah. So, like, you know, crayfish, sense. tiny little crustaceans, right? Yeah. Uh, they look a little bit like lobsters, but we have them on the plains. So, uh, which is great. Which is cool, right? It's yeah. like a little. They're like a little funky lobster, that, you know. <laughs> but the reason they do that is they are building a little burrow. So, like you said, how a mesquite tree has that tap root. So mm-hmm. um, instead of having, you know, a root that spreads out, it has a root that shoots down into the earth to get to the water. Mm-hmm. Crayfish have to do the same thing. So when it gets too hot to dry wherever they're at, they have to burrow down to get water onto their gills so they can, you know, mm-hmm. live. Right. So, yeah. Cause you don't think about that, but of course, if the farther down you go, I mean, the more likely you are to encounter water. Yeah, absolutely. So they have to get they have to get down to that point where the soil mm-hmm. is moist enough to where they can find water. Um, a good it's a kind of a good behavioral adaptation mm-hmm. for that. Um, another behavioral thing for dealing with the heat would be how like a lot of snakes become seasonally nocturnal, right? Mm-hmm. So you know we talked about a cactus uh, avoiding a lot of its activity during the day, basically. A lot of snakes will do the same thing. Everything from prairie rattlesnakes to speckled king snakes. Uh, you know they're not they're not you know, truly nocturnal. They're not nocturnal all the time, but you can see them moving around during the day. But a lot, a lot of time, they will be kind of just resting. So those are, those are some good ways to avoid avoiding the heat. Is is a good way to to dodge uh, losing too much water. Well, yeah, you just avoid it entirely, so right? you don't have to deal with it. <laughs> There's some a few other really weird ones, and uh, the, I guess the one that I, I really want to talk about. Um, is an animal that we have here at the Great Plains Nature Center that's really well adapted for a desert environment, and that's our kangaroo rat. Uh, yeah, it, so um, what I think is really interesting, and this is going to get slightly gross because we're going to talk a lot about pee, but... But no, that's a great... A, yeah, It's important, right? Yeah. If you think about that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an essential function, right? You have to get rid of waste products in your body. But urine is a lot of water okay you're, you're losing a lot of water whenever you urinate so desert animals do that quite a bit differently okay um for one they uh they have highly concentrated urine okay so um 
the kidneys, right? Their kidneys are, are different than ours. They have these very, um, you know, the, the part of the kidney that filters out things from the blood is very, very long. It's called the loop of Henley. Uh, and they, yes. those, those, those loops are very long. They, they take, um, so they're taking a lot of compounds out of the blood and then putting it into a really concentrated, um, what they'd call, uh, I think it's called like hyperosmotic or, or like salty. It's very mm-hmm. salty, yeah. uh, forming, um, like uric acid instead of urine. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a really, really highly concentrated, form of waste that they let go and that way so they're not basically drying their whole body up they're not Mm -hmm. losing all that water and that's really important for a kangaroo rat because they actually they they almost never drink yeah i remember i remember reading about that the fact that they I mean, almost all of the water that they get is from their food. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 what's called a, a metabolic water, right? So um, they're eating mostly like things like grass seeds and stuff like that. But as they eat them, uh, they're they're you know they're breaking it down. There's a chemical reaction happening as they eat the grass seeds that's breaking it down. Uh, you know, taking those sugars, the glucose, and breaking it down into water. So they're not ever actually taking drinks of like freestanding water, or, or at least they don't have to. They can they can survive their entire lifetime without ever actually taking a sip of water from a puddle or whatever. Which is crazy because, I, I mean, water is the first thing you think of as being necessary for most animals yeah. to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And yet they never have to drink it. That's insane. They do have to eat a lot, but they don't have to drink water. <laughs> You have to eat to drink. Yes, exactly. You do. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great examples of that. Um, I mean, the desert produces, you know, arid environments in general Mm -hmm. produce so many strange life forms. I mean, we could talk about it all day, but... Well, yeah, I mean, we we have been talking about (laughs) it for for quite a while, yeah, (laughs) because... Yeah, like earlier, even the things that are adapted to the cold, frequently they are a desert-like environment. It's Whether it's hot or cold, you still have a lack of moisture. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, also roadrunners do that too. <gasps> what? Yeah. No! So roadrunners, like, um, instead of... Uh, they will they will lose salts through a special gland mm-hmm. in, their, like, in their, like, nose. Right, yeah. Yeah, so they're, like, basically, like... like is it leaking <laughs> leaking these these waste compounds out of their nose so they don't have to lose a lot from um, from urination and, and defecation yeah. and stuff like that. So they're instead of instead of you know losing a lot of water that way, they're just kind of like getting rid of the waste products a different way. Yes. Very weird. A lot of sea like a lot of seabirds and stuff do yeah. that too. I was gonna I was about to say, I was I was thinking some of the seabirds did that as well to handle the amount of salt that they're intaking. Yeah, exactly. If they're so. eating a lot of like saltwater fish or invertebrates, mm-hmm. then yeah, they have to like basically blow all that salty the salty mm-hmm. stuff out through their nose. Roadrunners do the same thing, even though they're so they're very far away from the ocean, but they're doing the same thing in the interest of not losing water. I did not know that. Yes. That is cool. Yeah. It's important. Yeah, very important. <laughs> okay, well, that's enough well, talking about pee, I guess, for, for one day. Oh, unless you want to talk about turkey vultures and the fact that they pee on their legs to oh, cool yeah, them down. Of course, why not, you know. I mean. We're gonna... talking about it. 
No, that's very get, that's a get very Rachel good, in here. That's a very good point. So turkey vultures do, yeah, they will defecate on their own legs. Mm-hmm. Um, again, to lose heat from their body, right? Mm-hmm. So they have those bare legs. Um, they will also you'll see turkey vultures a lot of times with their wings stretched out. Mm-hmm. That's another way they're trying to get rid of heat. Okay, mm-hmm. sometimes they'll stretch their bald head out, mm-hmm. trying to get rid of heat. And they'll do um, that sometimes to get heat, too, because they'll sun in the morning. So it's yeah. like a dual purpose. Yeah. You can use it for either one. Right. So you can bask a little bit. Because they have, I think their their body temperature is kind of low for a bird. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, it is. Um, and I think it's, I mean, there's probably a variety of reasons why they're adapted to have a lower body temperature Partially probably because of their diet. I think it's mainly their diet because of all the things that they're ingesting. They want to be able to not not get sick, obviously. Yeah, not incubate disease. Right. Right. That would be very bad for them. Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I've actually heard that when they when they do uh, when they defecate on their legs, they're actually because their uh, their feces, their poop is so acidic, it actually does kind of help. It's like it's weirdly a way for them to clean themselves too. Yeah, it's like it's like bleaching their legs. Yeah, it's like hand sanitizer. Right. I wouldn't recommend it though. For I, us. I wouldn't try it. No. 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 <laughs> don't don't use vulture <laughs> don't, poop. Don't try this at home, kids. Just just wash your hands with soap and water. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a lot. We yeah. There's so much to talk about. Um, yeah, climate and weather. Obviously, you know are, like we said, it's a driving force behind what so many plants and animals do, what they look like, mm-hmm. how they are. It's it's super, super important. So I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about it today. I like to nerd out about this stuff because, again, you know, the physiology side of things, it's just so, so cool to me. Um, it's, it's, you know, these animals basically have kind of like their own little superpowers, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to survive in extreme environments. So... I mean, it's the same thing for plants. I I could talk about plant adaptations all day because <laughs> they have so many of them because they don't get to move up and walk around. They have to stay where they are. That's true. So they got to deal with it. They got to deal with it. Well, check out our show notes on gpnc.org slash that's my favorite. And of course, thanks to our producers, the Great Plains Nature Center. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review. Uh, We'll be back next week with a new topic and uh, some more favorites because everything is our favorite. See ya. Bye. That's that's fine. What's up? Yeah. We're, we, uh, yeah, we, we <laughs> we've had, we've had many, this has been a, many veering it's off. It's been a winding road. Yes. Yeah.